Hello and welcome to episode number 11 of my podcast, The Wash. Today I'm going to be talking about one of my favourite books, which is Tribe by Sebastian Junger, which I've talked about many times before on podcasts, in blog posts and the like. I'm going to be talking about that again, but also that alongside what some, or one in particular, of the second order consequences of the coronavirus pandemic might be. Let's get stuck in then. Tribe is a book about connection and community and in Tribe, Sebastian Junger considers how those two things might be affected in times of crisis and particularly in Tribe wartime. He also writes about how the lessening of community cohesion in modern day society seems to be psychologically harming us and damaging us. So it's no secret that whilst our communities seem to figuratively and quite literally be growing larger and larger, the personal connection for the majority of people within those communities is just plummeting. People keep churning out more and more babies, but the personal connection is decreasing in spite of this. Sebastian Junger refers to this early on in Tribe, saying, a person living in a modern city or suburb can, for the first time in history, go through an entire day or an entire life, mostly encountering complete strangers. They can be surrounded by others and yet feel deeply, dangerously alone. There's that Michael Bublé lyric in, I think it's his most famous song, and he's like, even, even surrounded by a million people, I still feel all alone and I want to go home. Bublé aside, I feel like I've got a bit of personal experience in this regard. So towards the end of my university education, I, I began to feel more and more separated and isolated. I lived in London, in Golders Green specifically. And it's not like I was without friends. I had, I had mates that I hung around with and a few close friends. But I think I was becoming depressed by the sheer amount of strangers that I saw every single day. And you go out and about in London and it's, you know, notorious in big cities is that experience on the tube where you've got like, what, 30 people to a carriage or something but no one is talking to each other, at least no one that's not already together, no one who, who didn't enter the tube as a couple or as a family. And this indifference to each other's well-being, but even just existence, it really weighed on me quite heavily. It didn't feel natural, it didn't feel right. Like I wanted to say hi to people and smile to people, but then at the same time, knew that that was a weird thing to do in London, like you're a strange person if you do that. That's a really conflicting feeling to feel. It would be very interesting for someone to do like a psychological study on what it is to be alone, quite literally alone, you know, like somewhere in nature where you're miles and miles and miles away from the nearest human being, what it feels like, and I guess maybe do like a brain scan or something, see if there's different areas of the brain firing, things like that. And then aloneness around people. I mean, I'm not sure I felt the other one so much, but very definitely I felt aloneness around other people. And that's horrible. I, I don't know whether aloneness literally would be quite so bad. I don't think that I'm alone in this experience. In fact, from reading what other people have said about how they felt in big cities, I know I'm not alone. And I think it's probably something that will have been studied a little bit. 
this paradox of modern day society, it must be causing like some kind of psychological dissonance. I mean, there's Dunbar's number, which is uh, the number of faces that you can remember. I think the number, the number of people that you can reasonably remembers faces. I'm probably butchering that, but, and the number is like 150. So, you know, I'd like to think that companies use that number to govern how many staff they hire if they want everyone to have some kind of like good connection and cooperation with each other. When you live in a big city, boy, you're seeing 150 people within 10 minutes of walking outside your doorstep, especially if you live really centrally, say in London or New York, probably talking like two minutes maybe, I don't know. It's actually one trait that I've always envied or admired within religions other criticisms without for the time being. Community is a pillar of most religious societies. Communal prayer, uh, and, and there's tons of other shared activities necessary uh, when you're a religious person and when you go to church or you go to your temple. That sense of community is also strengthened by a strong emphasis upon equality. Most of us will be familiar with the Christian golden rule, I think it's called, which is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The golden rule is representative of the ideal that all human beings are equal and therefore should be treated equally. And to be literal about that idea of, you know, literal equality for everyone is probably a little bit naive. It's likely impossible for that to be achieved just based on how the world works and how balance is achieved from having negative things and positive things, so on and so forth. Physics, bro. Um, but it's also possibly not entirely desirable based on, you know, as an ideal, yes, maybe everyone's equal and everyone gets on, but in the attempts to sort of have pure equality in the world in the past, we've ended up with some very dark situations arising out of that because who who enforces the equality? Considering equality with regard to this pandemic, however, I don't think it would be entirely inaccurate to say that we've probably got a little taste of something just a bit closer to equality than we're used to. And that's the change that has been brought about by the ruthless infectiousness of the coronavirus. Whilst the coronavirus does affect some people slightly more than others, it doesn't seem to discriminate upon the basis of the usual factors that separate our society. Wealth in particular has become a bit less significant. I mean, wealthy people, they can probably prevent being exposed to the virus a little bit more in terms of easier means of isolation. I mean, they've got holiday homes and shit that they've been getting told off for, for fleeing to, or islands in some cases. Richard Branson, you prick. But should the wealthy come into contact with the coronavirus, it's not gonna spare them the infection. They're just as likely to get infected as the rest of us. Younger refers to this movement towards equality in tribe, when he says, the one thing that might be said about societal collapse just quickly, not saying this is societal collapse, but you know, it's closer to societal collapse than we've been in a while. The one thing that can be said about societal collapse is that for a while at least, everyone is equal. And on top of this, consider for a moment the words of a survivor of the 1915 earthquake in Avezzano, Italy, which killed more than 30,000 people, who said, 
An earthquake achieved what the law promises but does not in practice maintain. The equality of men. And the pandemic hasn't brought about true equality, but I feel like it's at least shifted the balance a little bit. This shift has got us moving towards a stronger feeling of likeness and shared existence. And also, as a result of that, or within the same boat, it seems to be provoking more positive action within communities, which is great. I think one thing that may have caused this change is the sudden realisation that we have a common enemy. I mean, the whole planet right now has a common enemy and also the realization that we seem to hold day to day that that enemy isn't you know the guy in the car in front of you or the woman in the car in front of you or behind you whatever our enemies aren't each other we know who our enemy is right now and there's some wicked examples of this i mean just in the uk i'll refer to you've got people dropping care packages on the doorsteps of people that they don't know vulnerable others or even just others in general. Um, over 750,000 people signed up for the government volunteer programme. Perhaps, you know, we, we might have been in a better position if we weren't relying on volunteers, but nevertheless, the sheer volume of people that volunteered says something about how committed people are to helping, which it doesn't feel like they are on a day-to-day -day basis. I wouldn't, I don't walk around thinking like that person would help me if I fell over, but this is united people in a way uh, on top of that you've got i know i know here and i'm pretty sure in other parts of the country as well there have been mutual aid groups set up on facebook so that people in need people who are struggling for things like food or any other things have a means to ask for things and ask for support and then others have a means to offer help i think whatsapp groups as well have been quite a big thing and i'm sure this is going around going on in other countries also. Even on just a minor level, people are acknowledging and saying hi to their neighbours who they haven't spoken to once in the five years since they moved in. One thing that tragedy does is it gives people purpose. Purpose that probably isn't always there within their daily existence, their day-to-day -day living. And one of the flowing themes throughout Tribe is the idea, the counterintuitive idea, that actually a lot of people are happier during times of tragedy. And I know that seems bizarre and it's an odd thing to consider, but there's a lot of research. I mean, Tribe is, I'd say it's probably mostly about that idea. Well, that's perhaps a little unfair, but that's one of the strongest things that came through to me. It's the idea that really struck me as like, wow, that's that's really interesting. I listened to Louis Theroux interviewing John Ronson today on his new podcast and John Ronson was saying that he, amongst many people that he's read about, who usually in day-to-day, -day, keep keep saying day-to-day -day living, but we'll, we'll just roll with it anyway, day-to-day -day living have anxiety and, and sort of strong anxiety problems. Right now, their anxiety is seeded into the background. That's bizarre, but it's also really cool, a really cool thing to consider. I know one of the things that Junger says in Tribe is about how depression levels during the Brits, the Brits, the, the Brits, man, depression levels during the Brits are probably like super high because it's such a shit show. People are watching it with a glass of wine, drinking and hating their life. Oh, sorry to the general public. Are the Brits even a thing anymore? 
God, I hope they're not a terrible, terrible thing. Depression levels during the Blitz, you know, the air raids of the Second World War in London, supposedly dropped quite a lot. I mean, I know suicide rates supposed to have dropped as well, but I'm not sure whether you could make other arguments for that because are people going to be killing themselves when they might die anyway? I don't know. To get back to where we were, this newfound purpose that some people have or... I mean, most people have during times of tragedy will be one reason that, you know, people may counterintuitively be happier. But another reason is also increased communal support, increased communal action um, and connectivity with other people. Even though right now we are more separate than ever in that, you know, we don't, the idea is, is that going near another human being at the moment is dangerous. I mean, what an odd place to be. But at the same time, even though most of us can only communicate through the internet and Zoom, which everyone loves right now, and other forms of social and communicative media, even though these are the only ways that we can talk to people and connect with other people, the connectivity seems to be higher and more people are communicating, people that wouldn't ordinarily communicate. I mean, in particular, the communication with neighbours that's happening. I think that's something really quite beautiful. And it's not something that happens in most, I say, peacetime, because this technically is peacetime, but it's not really. It's, you know, it's like a, a, it's a war of sorts, isn't it? It's a war on the bio danger that nature has sent after us to try and like get its planet back. The possible positive secondary effects of times like these have been considered for a while now and in the book Junger refers to a sociologist's assessment of England's reaction to the Second World War and that sociologist said in every upheaval we rediscover humanity and regain freedoms. We relearn some old truths about the connection between happiness, unselfishness and the simplification of living. That's been a big one for me and I think probably for a lot of people, the simplification of living. The idea that we overcomplicate things and, and all these silly ideas about you have to be here to do this and you have to be at this place for work and just everything seems insignificant but in a good way, because the only thing that matters right now is staying healthy and staying alive and keeping your family healthy and your loved ones and being kind to people and stuff like that and not bullshit about work. Like, I know a lot of people have lost their jobs and things like that, and that's horrible. But for those who do still have jobs, I mean, just the idea of your boss having a go at you, it's kind of a bit like, so fucking what, man? Like, the, do you not see what's going on around us? And then say, I don't know, an office worker, your boss is having a go at you because you didn't make enough copies for something. Really? Like, who really cares? It really makes you reconsider what matters and what does not. And unfortunately, human beings like to complicate things. I think there's a, a, a heuristic surrounding that idea that people make things more complicated than they are. Um, Humans like to do that. Perhaps it makes us feel more necessary if we if we create this idea that something's difficult and that's why we are good, because we can do that difficult thing. An even more interesting idea to me 
anyway, given the public appreciation of the NHS, you know, the Thursday night clap, which I forget about every time, and then I have to rush to the window in the middle of doing something. I, I sort of, I clap with my hands out the window, but my face still in. Um, my girlfriend just hides completely and just claps. But I think the reason I do that is because I do feel like some people... Some people like to make things about themselves a bit. You know the ones that are in the middle of the street with the pans, like, just banging really loudly, like, hoping that everyone's looking at them, like, look how appreciative I am! I'm the most appreciative of the NHS! Let's see how you vote in the next election, and then we'll decide how appreciative you are. This episode seems to be just one big segue, but what I was saying was an even more interesting idea to me, an observation that Sebastian Junger makes, is that British historians have linked the hardships of the Blitz and the social unity that followed to a landslide vote that brought the Labour Party into power in 1945 and eventually gave the United Kingdom national health care and a strong welfare state. It's no secret that the Conservative Party have had a somewhat complicated relationship with the NHS, the National Health Service, in the past. That might have been changed a little bit with Boris saying that the NHS saved his life. But regardless of political affiliation, I would be very surprised if the NHS doesn't come out of this being given more support. Because I remember reading Adam Kay's book um, not too long ago. Um, it's like a, a junior doctor's diary. Um, this is going to hurt, I think it's called. And just the sheer, the sheer immensity to which the NHS is just overrun. Usually, like when I saw this coming, when it became obvious that the coronavirus was going to move into our country, the idea of that being piled on top of an already underfunded NHS was petrifying. But now I think the country as a whole has turned the focus on the NHS. I mean, we've had to because they're the ones doing so many things for people putting their lives at risk it's mad because there's a hospital just around the corner from me i mean my girlfriend works there and to think that there's people there every single day going onto these wards and putting themselves in danger and also if they're staying still at their familial homes putting their families in danger that's mad every time an ambulance drives past me i feel like i want to acknowledge them in some way but i also don't want to annoy them so i don't want to wave because i'll have to wave back and i don't want to force them to do something i think maybe maybe a part of me just wants to just like salute them <laughs> but imagine how much of a dick they think you are as well as the NHS and health services all around the world, I think everything that's happened has led to people having a greater general appreciation of facets of society that we don't even ordinarily consider. And this is one more thing that Sebastian Junger, I should just say Junger or Sebastian, I can't say Sebastian, it's too, too familiar in it. Um, but this is one more thing that Junger ponders towards the end of Tribe uh, when he says the public is often accused of being disconnected from its military which uh, bloody hell yeah people I mean no wonder that people in the services come back to sort of normal life and, and they just feel isolated and separated because they put themselves in danger constantly 
and half we don't even really know what they're doing or where they are, where they're stationed. Um, but yeah, back into the quote, the public is often accused of being disconnected from its military, but frankly, it's disconnected from just about everything. Farming, mineral extraction, gas and oil production, cargo transport, logging, fishing, infrastructure construction, all the industries that keep the nation going on, mostly unacknowledged by the people who depend on them the most. One key example of this in the UK, and I think it happened in most countries around the world, was the sort of increased pressure on the food supply chain at the beginning of the crisis when everyone was sort of needlessly stockpiling. I mean, don't get me wrong, when the government wasn't taking it seriously, I think it was a sensible idea to stockpile. Better be overprepared than underprepared every day of the week. But people took it too far with the bloody, you see cars full of toilet rolls and people buying shit that they never used, like flour was sold out for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, but this, this shortage, it kind of forced us to turn our heads to the food supply system. I mean, I used to get shopping deliveries. That was weekly, I'd get a shopping delivery. I never went into shops because ordinarily I consider it a bit of a waste of time if you can get something delivered. And also it avoids multiple shopping trips because you rarely go and do one weekly shop and then you're sorted. But if you do it from the comfort of your own home and you're sensible and you make a list, Another segue. But like I said, this fear of scarcity forced our attention upon these food services. And all of a sudden we were seeing the people who delivered this food um, sort of to our homes if for home delivery people, but the people who delivered it to the shops, just the whole supply chain, the vendors, we actually started to look at these people and realize how important they were. In fact, everywhere we look, those who in the past have disrespectfully been referred to as low-skilled workers. I mean, I know that sort of the, this government or members of this government were referring to nurses and stuff as low-skilled workers. And they even refused to vote for a, a pay rise for nurses and stuff a while back. Those low-skilled workers, sort of uh, shelf stackers, lorry drivers, nurses, porters, other other members of, of the hospital services have now emerged and are being called key workers. I mean, their wages certainly don't reflect that. But these people are now the most important individuals in our society. They're the people that keep the food on our plates and they're the people that care for our sick, whilst most of us are able to sit it out and kind of while away this this crisis in some sort of like weird furloughed hibernation. I'm really hoping that this newfound respect is another social attitude that will persist once we move out of these more difficult times. Look, make no mistake, I'm not dismissing the coronavirus pandemic in any way by broaching these subjects. If anything, I think it's probably a sign of worse pandemics to come and hopefully we'll react accordingly and become more prepared for the future. Considering any positive possible outcomes to it, I'm merely looking for a freckle of light that might help us guide ourselves out of the darkness. And for me, a greater sense of community on a local, national and global scale, it represents such a freckle. The value of community is a value that has been dwindling. And I do agree with 
Sebastian Junger's assessment of the fact that the absence of these stronger social, communal and connective bonds within society are most likely harming us psychologically. Um, and hopefully that's something that will survive out of this. Here's to hoping that the love and care that have sprung forth over the past few months might carry downstream into the rivers of the decades to come. Okay, so we'll leave it there. Um, other things to add, I, by the time this goes up, I'm hoping to have added my book notes for Tribe onto the page within the book section of my website. Um, there's some more, more really, really interesting quotes. Separate from that, Sebastian Junger, who you know what, he's a really good talker as well and he doesn't make many public appearances because he, I don't think he's too keen on the limelight. But um, if you can find any podcast appearances or interviews that he's been in, then I'm sure you'll find him even more impressive um, than you will do having read the book. But he also wrote a article, an article, about how all of those things that he talked about within Tribe and, and the things that he's kind of spent his life hypothesizing, how they come into play now. So he's written about the coronavirus pandemic himself, which is a real treat because he doesn't he doesn't tend to publish many articles. You can check that out on my website also. Go to jackandthewash.com slash links. And then you click on the articles page and it's in there and it will take you to the page of the National Review or something. That's the journal that it's on. Um, you'll really like that article. That's that then. Nothing else to say apart from thank you for listening. Take care. Check out my website. Bye tribe and stay good. I'll see you next time.